Well, good morning, everyone. I hope you guys are well this morning. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll say I'll, I'll admit, yes, I am planning with Acts 29. That is something that I plan to do. I know Kyle said he'll let me clarify that, but uh, that's definitely something that I'm planning to do. A quick little bit about uh, myself and my family. Uh, for the past 17 years, really, I've been working in Houston in kind of corporate oil and gas world, and then about 12 of those years helping to plant churches. So day job was business, night, and everything else that our family did really was helping plant churches in Houston and in Central Texas, and about the past five years in East Africa as well. And so it's something that uh, God has just pulled me towards continually, and I ran from continually. Uh, 2018, I realized that if I continued to do that, it would be disobedient. So like any good Christian, I waited two more years to, uh, to actually obey. So uh, 2020, we, we in the middle of the pandemic, a great time to decide to do this. But we took our family and we left our home, sold our stuff, moved to Round Rock and started a residency with Redeemer Round Rock. So that's what we're that's what we're in the middle of of now. And then uh, it affords me wonderful opportunities like this morning to come. Uh, share God's word with you guys. Uh, this morning, we're going to be in Galatians 5. So if you guys want to want to grab your Bibles and open up to chapter 5 of Galatians, while you're turning there, I'll share a history story uh, with you. Uh, in the late 13th century, the, the country of Scotland found itself under really questionable English rule. So uh, a succession of deaths had left Scotland's throne empty. And uh, this King Edward of England came in to sort of oversee what was going on. He was a temporary authority figure. And what that led to was really this tussle over the country of Scotland between England and France. This absence of leadership led a particular man, a Scottish man, to begin a rebellion in the country against what was what was going on. That man's name was William Wallace. And so as I, as I say that, several of you may have the, the image of Mel Gibson pop into your mind with the long hair, the blue face, maybe the kilt uh, that Gibson wore. That's because Gibson played Wallace in the film Braveheart. So that film, just so you know, really threw historical accuracy out the window. But William Wallace was a real man, and he did lead a real rebellion. As far as the movie goes, one of the most memorable moments in that film was the very end. You guys remember this when Wallace is being killed. Uh, this is a spoiler, by the way. So <laughs> plug your ears if you haven't seen the film yet. Uh, Wallace is being killed for what he did. And uh, he, he yells out a word. He yells out a word. The word he yells out is freedom. He does this loud and long. And especially with us as Western audiences, that really resonated in our hearts. That meant something to us because we feel like we have a really great grasp of freedom. We feel like we understand what freedom is. We feel like we know what it takes to gain freedom. We know that if we want freedom, we've got to put on our boots and pull ourselves up. We've got to grab our swords. We've got to go fight for it. We've got to achieve. We've got to perform. We've got to do something to really gain this kind of freedom. We're a country founded on that kind of freedom. But in our text today, God's going to show us where our idea of freedom and where his idea of freedom, where they really part ways. Let's look at Galatians chapter 5, 1 through 6. I'm going to read the text. Follow along with me, please, if you would. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. 
I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Would you bow your heads with me as I pray for us this morning before we walk into the text? Heavenly Father, I just ask that... um, You would soften our hearts this morning to hear you. You would let your word press into us. And where it does, I ask that you would let us give way. Father, I ask that where you encourage and exhort us, those would become just the foundations of our faith and the things we remember. Uh, Father, and, and where you reveal to us things we didn't know, I ask that those truths would change who we are. Um, God, move me out of the way this morning. I ask that your word be clear. Uh, I ask that your word be strong and bold and mighty in our hearts. We love you and we trust you. Amen. So when many of us think about freedom, we think about the effort it takes to gain freedom. Like William Wallace, who we talked about earlier. You may think of a soldier. Um, I think particularly of soldiers like in World War II. My grandpa was a soldier who fought in World War II. So that's kind of always on my mind. Uh, We know that if we're to gain freedom, we have to do something to get this freedom. And this is usually true even in our most basic ideas of freedom. So you can think of it this way. If I want freedom from getting a ticket, I need to get my car inspected. So there's an action we have to take. If I want freedom from anxiety, I need to go see, uh, probably need to see a doctor. I need to seek help for um, proper mental health, maybe medication, maybe some exercises that I need to do to help myself with anxiety, an action that we must take. If we want to uh, have freedom from gaining weight, we've got to lay off the Oreos and we've got to find an exercise plan. So there's action we have to take to gain this freedom. And freedom at its core usually means three things for us. Freedom, first of all, means that we're rescued. So it means that we're rescued from the current situation that we're in. Second of all, it means that we're given hope. So typically the situation we're in has an element of hopelessness to it, and we want hope again. And lastly, the thing that freedom usually means for us is that we go forward from that moment and we live a new life. So when we want freedom, we typically want rescue, hope, and a new life. The way we've been conditioned to think about freedom, especially in our Western uh, world, our Western mindset, is that we've got to work to earn that freedom. We have to be William Wallace-like. We have to take up the sword. We've got to do something to go achieve or perform and get that freedom. And this same way of thinking leaks over into our relationship with God. And when God tells us in his word that freedom can actually be free for us, it does not compute very well with us. It's like putting a a cassette in a CD player, or <clears throat> it's like saying that Ben and Jerry's is better than Bluebell. I'm a Bluebell fan, so I'm just going to throw that one out there. Cultures conditioned us to see freedom as something that we have to earn. And here's the deeper reality when it comes to freedom in Jesus. It's easier for us to believe that we have to gain the freedom that Jesus offers than to believe we can have that freedom by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I'm going to say that again. It's easier for us to believe that we have to work to gain the freedom that Christ offers than to believe we can have that freedom by grace alone, through faith alone. 
This was the same problem that the Galatians were having in our text. Paul had come to these churches. He had come to this area. He had preached the gospel. He had told them, look, you're saved only by faith alone in Christ alone. And then as Paul leaves, some other people come in and they start saying, well, Paul was sort of right. Like you are saved by faith in Jesus. You're saved by grace, but you also need to do some some things. You also need to adopt Jewish laws and customs. So the Galatians were being taught that rescue is actually grace plus works. But what Paul's saying here, what he's telling the Galatians and what the message is to us is that because of the work Christ has done, your rescue needs only to be received. Church, your rescue needs only to be received. Let's jump into the text today. We're going to be in verses one through six, but we might move around a little. I'll try to lead well as we go. So look with me first at verses two through four and the first part of six. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. And then the first part of six. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Paul says this, and it's the first thing I want you to see. Because the work of Jesus Christ has set us free, we don't need to look anywhere else for our rescue. There are two primary places we seek rescue for our souls. And Paul points them out here in the first part of verse 6. We seek rescue through circumcision. We're going to talk about that here in a little bit, which is working for our rescue, attempting to earn our freedom. And we seek rescue through uncircumcision, which is the idea that many of us seek a form of rescue apart from God altogether. Rescue that we want, rescue that we desire. For the Christian, we often run to earning our freedom. That's just how we're wired usually. It's like a warm blanket for our souls. It just seems to fit. It just seems to make sense with our culture. It just seems to make sense with our lives. We've got to perform. We've got to achieve. But there's another another reason we feel this way too. We feel this way because deep down we know who we really are. We know the darkness in our own hearts. We know the sin in our own souls. And we just really feel like we've got to help God with our salvation. We feel like we've got to earn that from God. We feel like we've got to do something to actually gain that. If we were to take the thoughts and desires of any one of our hearts and we were to somehow collect them from this past week, everything you've said, everything you've done, everything you've thought, and and we could broadcast them maybe up on these screens, it would be really hard for you to sit in this room. The shame, the darkness, the sin that you would see. See, we know, we know our hearts. We know how corrupt we are. We know how dark we are. We know how sinful we are. And it just doesn't make sense to us that God in his grace would would give us something good, that he would love us, that he would pursue us because we are so unfaithful, because we are so unholy. But he does. He does, church. Look at what's happening here in verses two through four. The specific topic that's being brought to the Galatians is they need to be circumcised. I will not walk through the specifics of circumcision this morning, but know that if we had time and we could go sit in Genesis 17, we could see that circumcision was a sign of God's covenant and his blessing upon his people. 
So God looks at the earth. He sees all the people. He chooses a people group for himself. And he says, the way I'm going to identify my people group, my covenant and my my promised people is through the act of circumcision. This will be an external sign to all the other people groups that these people are mine. And it will also be a promise by them. It's a representation of cutting off, of dying to the old self. This will also be a promise to them that they're or a promise from them that they're going to obey all my laws. They're going to seek to obey everything that I've said and everything that I've done. The Galatians are accepting the idea that faith in Jesus isn't enough, that they need to go take these Abrahamic covenant laws and add that to the faith in Jesus. And Paul says here in what we just read, he says, look, if you do this, Christ is worthless to you. So what about us? What about us? What about 2021 Brenham, Texas, Central Texas, wherever we're from? What about us in 2021? What things do we do? What things do we run to? What things do we think we have to do to earn God's favor or to help God along with our salvation? Uh, personally, I grew up with this really skewed view of how sin worked in my life and how God's grace was in my life. Uh, I really grew up with this idea that every time I committed a sin, every time that would register in my mind, I needed to confess this verbally. And so for a long time, this led to a lot of anxiety and a lot of stress, a lot of whispering under my breath, a lot of finding an empty room to, to kind of talk to myself in. Because I believe that once I sinned, I was no longer saved. I was no longer in God's grace and no longer in God's mercy. And I needed to help him get me back. I needed to perform an act in order to get back into his grace, in order to earn my salvation again. And what this did for me for a long time was really it hid my view of God's grace and mercy in my life. And it hid my view of the grace that had been extended to me through Jesus Christ. What things do you rely on? To earn your righteousness before God. What's your, what's your token? See, that thing for me was a, was a token. It was just something I did um, to earn God's righteousness back. What's, what's yours? Maybe, maybe you think back to a time when you were young and you accepted Jesus into your heart and you've gone on and lived your life really apart from God. You think back to that moment and you think, I'm good though. I'm good. Like, I'm okay. There was that moment. Or maybe you think it's how much scripture you know or how much scripture you don't know. Maybe maybe it's how much work you do here for this church or it could be you think, hey, I don't really watch bad TV shows. I don't really listen to bad music. I don't really talk really that bad. I'm a I'm a pretty good person. I may have some sin in my life. There's some things I do, but I'm not really as bad as those people over there. See, you're relying on your own goodness. We're relying on our own works, and it's something we we do. It's this negotiation we do with ourselves all the time, and we make all kinds of things into our uncircumcision, uh, our circumcision, sorry, our works, our performance that earns our righteousness before God. But we don't seek our freedom just by doing works. There's another way Paul talks about. He talks about the uncircumcision mentality. We seek it another way. It's what he's talking about in verse six, where he says neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. This uncircumcision, the idea that Paul is pointing to is the reality. There's a way we seek our rescue apart from God altogether. 
We can see this at work sometimes in our own lives, how we make good things so important. We can do this with our family. They can be what rescues us. We can do this with our career or even our ministry. We also see it in the culture around us. We see we seek rescue in politics, in the political figure. We seek rescue in social media. A uh, real hot topic right now, we seek rest, rescue in gender identity, so how we identify sexually. We seek rescue in indulging material wealth and goods in our retirement plans or our investments or, or where our money is or how, how we've spent our money. In the letter to the Corinthian church, Paul talks about this idea. He says, if Christ didn't come back from the dead, essentially if this Christ thing isn't real, then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. This is the uncircumcision mentality that none of this God stuff really matters, that this life is all there is. I'm just going to seek my rescue, my freedom somewhere else in another way. And when we seek those things for our rescue, see this, when we seek those things for our rescue, we're also putting our hope there. This works like this. I hope this job will rescue me from. Poverty, lack of identity, lack of security. I hope this relationship will rescue me from loneliness. I hope this purchase will rescue me from feeling down. So we we run after these things, hoping that when we catch them, they'll offer us some relief. They'll offer us some rest. Some rescue, and let's be honest, sometimes they do. Sometimes they offer us that rescue, but it's always, always, always temporary. It is not lasting. Like a vapor, it's gone, and then we're sitting again needing to be rescued once more. If, if that's you this morning, or if you've got something on your heart this morning, or if you've got something on your mind this morning, just know that what Paul is telling the Galatian church, he's also saying to us, you will never find true rescue apart from Jesus Christ. You will never find true hope apart from the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. This faith that Paul's talking about, That's what really gives us hope. Paul's going to tell us that. Look with me at verse five, verse five. For through the spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Paul's saying this This is the second thing I want you to see. Because the work of Jesus Christ has set us free. We have a future hope now. So I'm going to say this another way. Without faith in Christ, this is this is more the way Paul says it. Without faith in Christ, we have no future hope. Paul says this back in verse four. He says, if we're seeking to earn righteousness through our works or by any other means, then we're severed. We're torn from Christ. There is no hope for us. In John 17, Jesus prays a prayer. While Jesus is here on earth, he prays a prayer. Your Bible is probably going to call it the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And when Jesus prays this prayer, it's this beautiful picture of Jesus saying, Father, God, would you make us one? You and I, would you make us one? And then everybody who believes in me now and who's going to believe in me in the future, would you also make us one? Would you make me one with them? And then, God, would you make us all one? Would you put us all together in this perfect picture of unity? 
What Paul's warning us about here, he says, essentially, that prayer, that unity with Christ that Christ himself desires for us. If you seek rescue apart from that, you're literally ripping yourself from Christ. You're severing yourself from Christ. Theologian Philip Ryken comments on the weight of this verse. He says this. If we do this, if we seek rescue elsewhere, Jesus Christ becomes a stranger to us. Those who try to justify themselves are bound for hell. Christ can no longer do them any good. See, it's easy for us to read this verse. We can read this verse. We can think about the extreme examples of this, or we can look at this and the specific thing that was happening at that moment in time. And we can say, that's really just something that happened there. Like, that's really just something that happened then. We don't have Judaizers coming in trying to convince us to run back to Jewish works. That's really just for the text here. But this is the false gospel of works creeping into our life in a in a veiled way. As Western Christians, this happens so easily for us, and it's something that we can we can so um, easily overlook as subversive it is and as hidden as it is. Um, Do we think that the quality of our devotional life makes us more acceptable to God or less acceptable to God based on how good it is? See, this is the the gospel or this is the false gospel of works creeping into our lives. We maybe feel that because we uh, homeschool our kids, that we've somehow earned God's favor. We're, We're better than somebody who doesn't and we're more favored by God. Do we think that we're God's man or woman because of the way we vote? We can so easily say with our lips that we trust alone in the work that Jesus has done. But then with our hearts and our lives, we can live a completely different way. We can live in this belief that we've got to do work. By no means run from it, family. Run from it. Examine your lives and see where you might be doing this and then think, I need to rest in the finished and completed work of Jesus Christ on my behalf. And when you are sure and you are certain that you're resting in that, rest in it again. Because Jesus has done it all for us. And then again and again and again and again. Here's something else Paul says here. He says this faith, it's given to us by God. Paul says that in verse five, he said, it's God, the spirit who gives us this faith in Jesus. And this faith gives us a future hope. This faith is a gift of God. It's also not something that we can just do. We can muster up uh, discipline for an exercise routine, but we can't muster up our own faith. We can uh, maybe set a great budget and we can be disciplined to not spend too much on Amazon. But we we can't be disciplined enough to create this faith in us. Jesus tells us himself in John three, that unless one is born again by the spirit, he's never going to see the kingdom of heaven. It's the spirit who gives us this faith. Remember, church, we only need to receive this from him. Then because of this faith, we now look forward with a future hope, a hope to come, a hope of righteousness. See, the book of Revelation tells of a time where men will be judged according to their works. 
But as you guys have already walked through in Galatians, Paul says, by works, no man will be justified. So what do we do? What do we do if we're judged according to our works, but our works can't save us? It's in that moment and that moment only that our faith in the wonderful and beautiful and perfect and sinless life of Jesus Christ will save us. That is our future hope. That is our hope of righteousness. So what we're seeing here is that having faith means we have hope, not because we've taken up the sword and fought for it, but because it has been given to us And this future hope. It informs how we live right now. It's not just information we pack away or shelf away. It's not just facts that we somehow know. It's not just information to be gained. Hoping in what's to come drives us forward into a new life right now. Remember what we said. We said that when we want rescue, we want or when we want freedom, we want rescue, hope, and we want to live a new life. Paul's going to talk about this new life now. Look at verse six with me and we'll focus in on this last part. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Here it is. But only faith working through love. Here's the final point for you this morning. Because the work of Jesus Christ has set us free. We can live a new life now. See, we have a faith that's working, church. It's not working to gain merit. It's not working to gain status. It's not working to earn our righteousness. It is a faith working in love. Paul says, your works don't matter. He says they don't. He says, your life of selfish freedom, that doesn't matter either. The only thing that matters is faith working Through love. See, our faith secures our future, fills us with hope, and drives us outward in love. What do we do with that love? Jesus tells us. Jesus tells us in Mark 12, he says, we love God and we love others. This is true freedom. This is true freedom. Do you know why? What do you think you need freedom from most of all? We need freedom from ourselves. That's what we really, really need freedom from church. Even though we value freedom so highly, we're limited in our understanding of it. And this is not the freedom we're expecting. But God knows it is the freedom we need. Listen to this. Secular sociologist Robert Bella says this quote. He says, freedom is perhaps the most resonant, deeply held American value. Yet freedom turns out to mean being left alone by others, not having other people's values, ideas or styles of life forced upon one, being free of arbitrary authority in work, family and political life. So essentially, when we talk about freedom, what we really want is freedom to go our own way and do our own thing. But Jesus, thankfully, offers us a different kind of freedom. It's a freedom that moves us from doing what we want to doing what God wants. It's a freedom that allows us to lay down our lives and our preferences and say, God, what do you want for me? What do you want for my life? It's a freedom that drives us towards other people that can cause us to cross incredible boundaries of race and culture and socioeconomic status to look at another person and ask, how do they feel? 
How is God calling me to serve them? How is God calling me to love them? It's a freedom that moves us to look at a broken culture and ask, God, what do you want me to do? How have you gifted me to help? How have you resourced me to help? This is a freedom that causes us to open up our homes to people who don't look like us or sound like us or live like us or that might even frustrate us and sit them at our dinner table and share a meal with them and share our lives with them and learn about them and start to really love them. It's a freedom that causes us to do radical things for the kingdom of God, like sell our home and help somebody go plant a church or the bonus we get or the retirement we had or the increase in pay we get. We decide not to go buy the bigger home or the RV or whatever it is we're chasing. And instead, we seek to live below our means and give our resources to the local church. And we seek to help them and we seek to make God's mission known here on earth. And do you know what else this freedom does for us? It helps sustain us in the normal things too. Because sometimes our lives are terribly normal. Moms, when you're wiping noses and changing diapers and making lunches, the freedom that Jesus has given you to lay down your own life, it sustains you. Dads, when you're really confused and you don't know how to put together a Bible study for your kids or they ask you this big question about God and and you don't really know, this freedom that Jesus offers allows you to lay down yourself and, and seek an answer with them and love them well. Spouses, this freedom to lay down your own life that Jesus offers allow you to, allows you to work to love your spouse day in and day out and day in and day out. This freedom sustains us. It carries us. The only thing that matters, Paul says, is faith working through love. Paul's going to go on here for the rest of this letter and say that this love is evidenced in your oneness as a church. In every single letter that Paul writes, to every New Testament letter he writes, He talks about the oneness of the church, the unity of the church. Get along over here, he says. Stop quarreling over here, he says. Have the the gifts of the spirit. Look at the fruit of the spirit and have that towards one another, he says. He says this over and over and over and over again. He says this. So that a watching world can look in and say, why do you guys do that? Why do you love one another so much? You're different. You have differences. Why do you care for each other so much? Why do you lay down your lives for each other so much? And then it gives the church the opportunity to say, because we've been rescued, we've been made free by Jesus. Let me tell you about it. Church, you're not in the room today just to accumulate knowledge. We don't just sing a reality that Jesus paid at all count it fact and go on about our lives. It actually matters that we do something with our faith. Again, not earning our salvation, but living out our faith in love. Martin Luther puts it this way. He says, he who wants to be a true Christian must be truly a believer, but he does not truly believe if works of love do not follow his faith. Why do works of love follow our faith? We're going back to the beginning now. Because we know how unlovable we are. We know how sinful we are. And yet God in his grace and mercy has reached down 
into the darkness. And he's rescued us. On August 5th, 2010, a mine collapsed in the Atacama Desert in northern Chile. 2,300 feet below the ground, three miles from the surface of the mine, 33 men were instantly trapped, cut off from the outside world. These 33 men made their way to an inner chamber inside the mine and they waited for rescue. And as they waited, multiple rescue attempts on the surface were being made to reach these men. And what they did on the surface is they drilled down through the earth and into this chamber that the men were in. And when the drill bits came down, when the drill heads came down, these men were writing notes and they were taping it to the head of these drill bits in hope that someone would know that they were down there. In hope that someone would know they needed rescue. In hope that someone would know that they were alive. It took 69 days and an international effort. To rescue these men one by one by one. When these men were trapped down there, they had tools. But no amount of work they could do could get them out. They couldn't chip away at the rock enough. They couldn't drill their way out. They couldn't claw their way out. Nothing they could do. No amount of work they could do would allow them to rescue themselves. And there was nothing down there with them that would allow them to rescue themselves either. It was only until somebody else reached into the darkness and rescued them that they could be saved. We can't rescue ourselves either, family. No amount of work we can put in will save us. And there's nothing else down here that's going to provide us with rescue Either we're like those miners, we're lost in the darkness, we're hopeless, and we need to be rescued. And we have been rescued, church. Jesus Christ is our rescue. He lived a sinless life, fulfilling all the laws that we can't fulfill. And trusting in Jesus, having faith in Jesus, means that the righteousness that he earned in his life is now imputed to you it's given to you it's credited to your account martin luther calls this the great exchange it's my sin for jesus's righteousness it's the most one of the most unbelievable things in all of scripture that jesus would take my sin and he would give me his righteousness and this is ours through faith This is true freedom for you and for me. It's not a righteousness we have to earn. It's not a righteousness we can find around us. It's freedom to be rescued, to have hope, and to live a new life. It's found only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. When Jesus came, he didn't lead a rebellion like William Wallace did. Jesus came to set captives free. When Jesus came, he didn't come wielding a sword like William Wallace did. He came wielding a perfect life of righteousness. And when Jesus died, he did not yell freedom. He said something far more important. He said, it is finished. The work is done. Family, we've been rescued. 
receive faith, believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have, uh, you have loved the unlovable. You have loved the unlovely. You have sent us rescue in your Son. What a glorious and amazing and wonderful truth. I ask that you would lead our hearts to respond to that truth this morning. I ask that you would lead us to examine our lives. What else are we resting in? What else are we trusting in? God, reveal that to us and remind us that you don't condemn us for that, that you don't damn us for that, but that you love us and that you hold out your hand and you give to us the gift of rescue through your son, Jesus Christ. Let our hearts rejoice in that father. Let our hearts celebrate in that father this morning. Father, let us remember what you've done for us. Let it sit heavy in us. Let us know it as true, but also let it inform our lives. Let it fill us with joy and send us out in love. God, help us trust you more. We love you. Amen.